I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning and that you will turn in them, if you do, to Matthew. Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15 can be found if you're using one of the Bibles that are in the backs of the chairs in the rows. You can find Matthew 15 on page 820 and 821. We will be focusing on the section in, on page 821. Well, we are getting back into Matthew's gospel this week, looking at the unexpected kingdom. And before I go any further, I just want to express heartfelt thanks to my fellow elders, and in particular, Pastor Brian, for generously and graciously carrying the preaching load these last few weeks, both as our family traveled and as we had some unexpected difficulties pop up. And as you all know, Brian is a faithful and sound and gospel-saturated teacher of God's Word, and I am grateful to serve alongside him and Paul as we seek to teach the Word and shepherd the flock assembled here. And I'm also thankful for all of you and your kindness to us over these last few weeks as we dealt with some of the unexpected things regarding our oldest son's seizure on New Year's Day. You all gave us meals far longer than we needed them. We had leftovers bursting out of our fridge. And what a kind, loving, gracious, and Christ-like body you are. So thank you. On to Matthew's Gospel. As, you, as you've already noticed, we've got 20 verses ahead of us this morning, but I do still want to get a little bit of a running start because it's been a little over a month since we were in Matthew because of our Advent series and then Psalm 23 last Sunday. You can see at the end of chapter 14, before where we're at today, that Jesus and his disciples had just crossed over the sea into Gennesaret, after the miracle of Jesus' walking on the water. And before that, Jesus had fed a crowd of well over 5,000 people shortly after hearing the news that his cousin and beloved friend and fellow ministry labor, laborer had been murdered. And then before that, at the end of chapter 13, Jesus was rejected by people in his own hometown. And now, in chapter 15, we see scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem coming to talk to him. So all this had just happened in uh, 13 and 14, and now here we are in 15. It's important to note that these Pharisees and scribes came from Jerusalem because this is pretty much, at the beginning of chapter 15 here, the beginning of the end as it relates to the relationship between Jesus and these religious leaders. It is a kind of foreshadowing of the final confrontation that would take place in Jerusalem, where the religious leaders would charge Jesus with disobeying God's law and undermining the religious establishment and even blaspheming. All of that was going to culminate in Jerusalem, but these men had come to meet Jesus from Jerusalem, and it kind of kicked off the beginning of the end. And what we see happening later in Jerusalem, as we see in the beginning of chapter 15, had roots long before the end. And here in chapter 15, Jesus gives his most startling, judgmental, you might say, pronouncement of the Pharisees up to this point. In verse 3, 
he charges them with breaking God's law. In verse 6, he says that they voided God's word. In verse 7, he calls them hypocrites. 8 and 9 points them out as the objects of ancient accusatory prophecy. And then in verses 10 and 11, Jesus makes a rabbinical pronouncement of his own that stands in contrast to their religious pronouncements, effectively putting himself and his teaching over them and their teaching. This is, as you can see, a momentous confrontation that put things between Jesus and the Jewish religious establishment, you might say, past the point of no return. This delegation of religious leaders traveled from Jerusalem all the way to this region of Gennesaret. And if you had a, a map in front of you, maybe in the back of your Bible, you see it's a, over a 50-mile journey. They were willing to go that far in that day before they had cars to confront Jesus about a matter that was very important to them. And that's phase one of the story before us, the inquiry of the Pharisees. The Pharisees' inquiry in verses 1 and 2, where they come to Jesus from Jerusalem and say in verse 2, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They do not wash their hands when they eat. The thing that concerned them, so much that they decided to travel from Jerusalem all the way to the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, is the fact that Jesus' disciples were not following the religious tradition of washing before eating. Now, don't get me wrong. I am a fan of washing before eating when possible. We tell our kids to wash their hands before we sit down for dinner just as much as anyone else. But imagine you hear that some Christians in Fort Collins aren't washing their hands before meals and you rent a donkey and take a ride up there to confront them about it, it would have to be something that was a really big deal to you. It was a really big deal to them. And the reason it was a big deal was actually because of who Jesus was and is. At the root of all this is who Jesus is and their perception of him and their regard for him or lack thereof. Because think of this, I, I bet the Jerusalem leaders weren't sending delegates of scribes and Pharisees to every town in Galilee to make sure that every Jew in every village was washing before meals as they should have. But when it came to Jesus and his traveling band of misfit miracle men, they did. Why? Because Jesus was gaining a reputation as a nonconformist to their religious traditions. Not a nonconformist to the law of God, no, no, but a nonconformist to their human traditions. Just think back briefly to what had happened in Matthew 12. You can turn there if you'd like. Jesus' disciples at the very beginning of Matthew 12 had done something else that upset the religious establishment in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12 it says at that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath 
And his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. The disciples are grabbing these heads of grain for a snack as they walked on the Sabbath, but the Pharisees had strict rules for what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath, and they were upset, therefore, and they confronted Jesus. But the problem is their traditions about what to do and not do on the Sabbath were not always biblical. That was the problem in Matthew 12. Jesus gets into that with them there, and it's the problem again in Matthew 15. The issue of ceremonial, or you could say ritual, cleanness was certainly part of the Mosaic law that the Jews were to follow. It was indeed a biblical matter. However, the law of God did not state that every Jewish person needed to be ceremonially washed before every meal, every day. It didn't say that. What did the law actually say? Well, it said in Leviticus 22 that the offspring of Aaron may eat of the holy things, may not eat of the holy things until he is clean. Whoever touches anything that is unclean shall be unclean until the evening and shall not eat of the holy things unless he he has bathed his body in water. And when the sun goes down, He shall be clean, and afterward he may eat of the holy things because they are his food. That's what the law said. And in fact, there's a little bit more in Exodus 30 and 40 that talks about the priests needing to be ceremonially cleansed before performing their tabernacle duties. But there's nothing in the law of Moses that says that every Jew had to be ceremonially clean before every meal, just that the priests needed to be clean before eating sacrificial food or holy food, the holy things in Leviticus 22. And so what happened that led to the tradition of ceremonial washing for everyone before every meal. Well, what happened, as, as history tells us, is that years after the Exodus and Leviticus laws were given, a scribal ruling was established that required everyone to ceremonially wash in light of the principle that certainly is biblical, that Israel was a priestly nation. And so they figured that in order for everyone to be as priestly as possible and for Israel to be as priestly a nation as possible, everyone needed to follow the priestly requirements for washing. And that, my friends, is what we might call a legalistic requirement that goes beyond the bounds of what Scripture actually says. According to Leviticus and Exodus, the ones who were to be concerned with ceremonial cleanness were the priests, Aaron and his sons and his offspring, as the passage on the screen indicates. The Levitical priests. And and the process for them to be clean was certainly thorough. Leviticus speaks of their whole bodies being bathed in water. And Exodus speaks of both their hands and feet being washed. But interestingly, the tradition established by 
later rulings of the religious leaders was different than what Scripture had prescribed. They expected everyone to wash ceremonially every time they ate, and they expected a meticulous process of washing that they had developed. One scholar named Charles Quarles noted that that it first included pouring water over your hands with your fingers pointing up, and then with the water reaching your wrist, then doing it again with your fingers pointed down and letting the water drip off your fingers, then rubbing your hands together but making sure that you're not rubbing a dirty hand until one of the other hands was clean, and then if you messed up the order or accidentally rubbed a clean hand with a dirty hand, you had to start all over. And the most devoted Jews were expected to do this before and during and after a meal. And so I think you can see this went beyond what had been biblically prescribed, even if the original intent was noble. And I can't help but be reminded of examples of ways that Christians in our modern time and Western world can prescribe certain expectations of what a good Christian should look like that goes beyond what the Scripture actually reveals. Perhaps you could think of certain arbitrary dress standards for modesty. Well, the Scripture certainly speaks of modesty, but it never prescribes measurements of length or amounts of tightness or amounts of skin shown. It speaks of the heart of modesty, which is meekness and humility and a focus on others instead of self. Things like the consumption of alcoholic beverages in moderation and with thanksgiving. The Scripture warns against the unwise use of alcoholic beverages, and it forbids drunkenness, but it doesn't explicitly forbid any kind of alcoholic drink under any circumstance. And prescribing the prohibition of ever touching the stuff is an extra-biblical tradition. Things like child-rearing and schooling choices. The Bible does not command how exactly to discipline your child in every single specific and intimate situation. It doesn't say whether or not children should be homeschooled or public schooled or Christian schooled. And when someone speaks of one method or another as more or less biblical than another, whether directly or indirectly, they've crossed over to this territory of the scribes and the Pharisees making law out of human tradition or principle and therefore doing this very thing. And you know, as I think about this, I realize that the same thing goes really for any kind of theological system. Obviously, if a theological system is sound, it will be a servant of the Scriptures. It will be subservient to what the text of God's Word actually says. And in my opinion, Reformed theology is usually a good example of this. But even Reformed theology must not and cannot trump Scripture. Evangelical Christianity, put in air quotes, is subservient to the Scriptures. And when a professing believer and follower of Jesus begins to become more subservient to evangelicalism or reformed theology or conservative tradition like the Pharisees, tragically, the Scriptures can be set aside for the sake of human tradition. And that is what the 
Jewish leaders had done when it came to ceremonial washing. And that's where the second phase of the story comes in, which is Jesus' indictment. Jesus' response here in verses 3 through 20 is a bit extended. It comes across as a little bit of a mini-discourse. As the kids would say, and I'm looking forward to all the eye rolls of the teens, Jesus claps back at the Pharisees and at what they have done with their traditions. He's going to indict them. He's going to instruct them. And as I've already said, Jesus' response is sharp. Not just sharp as in clever, although it's certainly that too, but sharp as in cutting. You see what he's doing? Verse 3, he answers them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Right out of the gate, he says, you who claim to be enforcers of God's law are breaking the commandment of God. Verses 4 through 9, he goes on, for God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. There's a lot here. Let's first look at a couple of key words and phrases. He has already said, you break the commandment of God, which would have been startling and upsetting for them to hear. But then he also says at the beginning of verse 4 and into the beginning of verse 5, God commanded, and then verse 5, but you say. In other words, Jesus is accusing them of teaching that contrasts with God's word. God said, but you say. It's kind of similar to the formula of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. It's this contrasting taking place. So he says, God commanded honor your father and mother, but you say, and then goes on to the rest of verse 5 and 6, which I'll get back to in just a minute. Next, notice in verse 6 that he says, for the sake of tradition, you have voided the word of God. And that would be a serious charge for them to hear as well. This carpenter from the backwater town of Nazareth in Galilee saying that these men who had studied and who had taught and interpreted and enforced the word of God had actually voided it. This man was saying they weren't doing what they thought they were doing. They were not upholding the word of God. And then in verse 7, he calls them hypocrites, which is obviously another serious charge. Merriam-Webster defines hypocrisy as feigning to be what one is not or to believe what one does not. Behavior that contradicts what one claims. In other words, it's someone whose walk doesn't match their talk, someone who doesn't practice what they preach, someone whose life contradicts what's coming out of their lips. I don't think anybody in this room would like to be called a hypocrite for any reason. 
But these religious zealots would especially not be excited about being called a hypocrite. These most morally conservative people, these most rigid rule followers, that's exactly who the Pharisees and scribes were. And hypocrites is exactly what Jesus called them. And finally, in verse 9, 8 and 9, 7 through 9, I suppose I should say, he connects them to what Isaiah said. And these indicting words that Isaiah wrote to the people of God about the judgment that was coming upon them because of their unfaithfulness. And for Jesus to connect this pronouncement from Isaiah to them would have also been offensive to them. They would not want to be associated with their forefathers' sins of unfaithfulness to God. They viewed themselves as faithful. But here is Jesus claiming to be God himself and saying, Isaiah was talking about people like you. You see how these are startling indictments. And there's more here. As I said, we would go back to verses 4 through 6, and and here's what Jesus is saying. He says that they're breaking the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment, you may recall, is from Exodus chapter 20, where the people of God are commanded to honor their father and mother. And in general, it was agreed upon that what that looked like in daily life included caring for parents who couldn't care for themselves if and when that time came and you were able to do so. However, another Jewish tradition developed which some of your translations of the Scriptures might actually name in the Gospels, and that is the tradition of Corbin. And yes, that is the word that inspired the name of our fourth son, though we spell it differently, and we prefer for him not to be associated with the Pharisees. But it's a word that simply means given to God. It's what the word means, and that's why we named our fourth son Corbin. And that's great in theory, right? A tradition of Corbin, a tradition of giving things to God. And this tradition of Corbin included donating resources to temple ministry and giving them to God. Still sounds great, right? Right. Well, here's the problem. If you were a vindictive and resentful and cynical child and you wanted to keep your resources away from your parents, you could just designate them Corbin. You could designate them given to God. Because there was this tradition in which it was determined that things designated Corbin were off limits for anything else. And so you can see how it would be possible for some hypocritical manipulation to take place. Think of it this way, if I just illustrate it this way. Let's say I am a Jewish man in the first century and I have a bad relationship with my dad. And most or all of you know that that's not the case and I'm very thankful for that. But let's say that along with the reality that my father, which is true, has had several health problems over the last several years, Lyme disease, heart surgery, pneumonia that almost killed him last Christmas and a a low-level prostate cancer right now. What if I had to help him with food and money and transportation related to all these things. And I just got sick and tired of it because he and I don't get along. And I don't think he ought to get my stuff. And we always have these harsh words when we're together. And I decide I'm not going to help him anymore. Well, I could talk to a rabbi and get a certain allowance for things to be designated Corbin. I could donate my car to the synagogue. I could give however much money in food and whatever else 
to this Corbin designation and wash my hands of the matter and be done with caring for my father. And technically, because of this tradition and the precedent that had been set, I would have been legally allowed to do this in the Jewish religion. But would I really be following God's law? Of course not. And that's the kind of thing Jesus is talking about here. You say, verse 5, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. We need not honor father and mother. They're making void the word of God. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, if I can try to paraphrase, one tradition is making everyone wash so the nation is, in theory, as far away from uncleanness as possible. But yet, here's another tradition that's promoting the mistreatment of parents from cynical and manipulative children. That's how they made the Word of God void. Putting in place traditions that went beyond Scripture and even sometimes contradicted it. Friends, this is a startling indictment. And it's not just an indictment of the Pharisees and scribes there at that moment looking to accuse him and his disciples. It's an indictment against all who would look to their own machinations or tradition and rules and standards and precedents to try and prop up their lives as a kind of fitting example of what it is to really follow the Lord and his will. It's the very same kinds of people that Paul spoke of in Colossians chapter 2, where he said, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Because at that point, there were some in the Colossian church who were requiring Jewish food laws and festival days to still be observed, even though all foods had been declared clean by Jesus and days and festivals were no longer required since Christ accomplished and fulfilled all of the requirements of righteousness of the law. Friends, the revelation of God through Holy Scripture is the final word on our belief and practice. Scripture trumps tradition. Human traditions can be good, but they're only as good and as helpful as they are servants of the Scriptures. Think of a few examples just in our own church. E412, our 9.30 Sunday morning Bible class time. Is a 9.30 Sunday morning Bible class time prescribed in the Scriptures? Of course not. Is it a tradition at RBC? Yeah, it is. And that means we have got to make sure that E412 serves the Scriptures and doesn't supersede it, which by God's grace, I believe it does at this moment. We enjoyed a wonderful time in E412 this morning. The same thing goes with our fellowship groups. The New Testament does depict people gathering in homes for fellowship, but it doesn't say 6.30 to 8 p.m. on Tuesdays and Wednesdays on the second and fourth weeks of the month is the way to do it. No, it doesn't. And so if our fellowship groups are a servant of what the Bible does command and teach God's people about the importance of fellowship and discipleship, then it's a good tradition. But if it doesn't, then it's not. Same thing about the children class going on right now during the sermon. Scriptures do not command that there be a separate 
time for younger kids during a sermon in a New Testament church. But since Redeemer's earliest days, we've implemented this tradition, along with many other churches, out of a desire to follow the principles that Scripture teaches regarding leading the little ones to Christ and teaching at different levels for different ages and stages. And so we believe that it serves the Scriptures, but we must be careful not to let it supersede them as if children's classes during a sermon are some kind of biblical mandate and that a failure to offer them would be a horrible mistake. Friends, we must beware the error of the Pharisees of trusting in traditions and human machinations to the exclusion of Scripture. The Pharisees and scribes Devotion to extra-biblical tradition led them to a place where the actual Word of God was neglected. Oh, friends, may that never be so in our church or in our families or in our own lives and hearts. Speaking of hearts, the heart and What's in us is what's at the heart of phase three of this story where we see Jesus' indictment, excuse me, instruction. You see that phrase at the end of verse 10? Verse 10 says, He called the people to Him and said, Hear and understand. That phrase, hear and understand, is remarkable because it is a formal rabbinical call to pay attention to an authoritative pronouncement. And so in the presence of the ones who regarded themselves as the authority on what was true and right in light of God's revelation, Jesus boldly pronounces something. And what does he pronounce? He says in verse 11, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. He says that what comes out of one's mouth, in other words, words, determines uncleanness, not what goes in. In other words, Jesus is saying that the Pharisees and scribes' concern about ceremonial washing before eating was inside out. He authoritatively proclaims then what is true, which is that what you put in your body, while important, isn't what's at the heart of whether or not you are clean, holy, pure, righteous in the sight of God. That is the point, ultimately, of uncleanness. It's a holiness issue. It always was with the people of God. The Pharisees certainly understood this. But they had some things inside out. Don't, don't think of the Pharisees as merely being germaphobic. They believed that holiness was important and that living according to God's law was essential. And they were right about that. The problem was that their self-righteous hubris and spiritual smugness led them down a path that led to regarding the external as the main thing when what is internal really was. 
They cared so much about ceremonial cleanness that they built some human traditions that would fence or guard them from coming even remotely close to violating any kind of external uncleanness. In theory, that could be okay, but it turned out they were hypocritical because when it came to honoring father and mother, another tradition was used as a loophole to avoid obeying God's law and, in fact, obeying the heart of the law, which is love. So the Pharisees and scribes had some important things inside out. The heart of the matter is the heart. And friends, this does not mean that nothing external ever matters. Of course, that is not the case. But friends, it's the internal, it's what's inside you spiritually that makes the eternal difference when it comes to your standing before a holy God. You can be a physically clean person and still be outside the kingdom of God. And you can be a poor and lowly and even physically dirty person and be inside the kingdom through faith in Christ. That's the gospel. The cleansing that we all need is accomplished by Jesus. He accomplished perfect righteousness through his perfect life. He paid the price for our spiritual filth when he was nailed to the cross. And when he was raised, he became the firstborn, so to speak, among many children who will one day through faith in him never have to deal with any kind of uncleanness, whether material or spiritual, ever again. Now look at verse 12. The disciples came and said to him, did you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? The religious leaders weren't a fan. Jesus had just undermined much of their teaching and practice and the establishment of their order and structure. He had just made a proclamation as if he had the authority to do so, which of course he did. But the Pharisees didn't think so. And so the disciples tell Jesus that the Pharisees are upset. And look at verses 13 and 14. Jesus answers, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. So let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Jesus says to move on. To let them alone. Because it was the Father's business to deal with them. That doesn't mean that there's never a time for anybody to confront someone. Of course, it doesn't mean that. The Scriptures are clear otherwise and elsewhere on that. But Jesus' point here was that the Father was going to judge and that the Father would sort out which were His and which were not. And tragically, Jesus also says that the Pharisees were taking some people to the pit with them, taking people to hell with them. He says that they were blind and that those who followed them were following a blind guide. It's a tragic image 
Imagine in your mind a, a visually disabled person standing alone and helpless in a crowd and then offered a hand in order to be guided safely, whether across the road or through a marketplace or in some other crowded area. And that blind person is relieved to be able to trust in the hand of someone who has taken their hand to lead them to safety and keep them from danger. But the tragic twist is that the one who takes their hand is also blind. And so they're both in grave danger. And in the image that Jesus uses here, it's the danger of God's judgment. He speaks of being rooted up, which is agricultural imagery that Jesus has already used in Matthew's gospel, and he's using it again. The imagery of a plant that is dead and therefore destined to be destroyed. It's a tragic image. And it's a tragic thing that this commitment to human tradition over scriptural truth is leading to. And then Peter speaks up, as he often does. He's speaking for the disciples as one of the leaders, and he asks Jesus to explain what he meant about that which comes out defiling rather than that which goes in. And that question really makes a lot of sense if you think about it. This was revolutionary stuff that the disciples were hearing. They were Jews, and Jesus was saying things that at times didn't sound very Jewish. And so they wanted to know where this revolutionary teaching was coming from. And here's what Jesus says in verses 17 and following. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? In other words, what goes in doesn't stay there physically. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. I want to put different emphasis there. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. Because, or for, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These defile a person. To eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile anyone. And of course, Jesus, again, is not saying that the priests didn't need to wash when they were getting ready to eat according to what Leviticus taught and what Exodus taught. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. But the point that Jesus is making is far deeper. Interestingly, Matthew doesn't include this in his gospel, but if you were to be reading Mark's gospel, you'd see that in verse 19 of chapter 7 of Mark, there's this parenthetical phrase, thus he declared all foods clean. Otherwise, it looks very similar to what Matthew has. And that would have been a huge statement for the Jews as well. They didn't fully understand it then. Clearly, we see that because of the episode in Acts where Peter was still confused about this, but it meant that no food was off limits for the Jews anymore. And of course, as I just said, this does become clearer to them as the New Testament progressed. But it was a, a big deal, a rather confusing thing for them to hear this kind of thing. Why? Why were these long-standing food laws coming to an end? Because Jesus had arrived. The one that everything in the law pointed to, that all of their religious ceremony and 
maintenance, you could say, was all about had come. Jesus' mission was to accomplish everything that the Old Testament food laws and cleansing rituals and sacrificial system was put in place to maintain. Remember, the sacrificial system was not put in place so that the Old Testament Jews could be saved. It wasn't put in place so they could accomplish their own holiness through obeying them. No, those things were put in place so that as they had been graciously made the people of God, they could maintain a relationship with him through this ongoing faith-fueled obedience. But now, Jesus had come. And therefore, abstaining from any kind of food was no longer necessary. But interestingly, what I just said this last minute or so is not what Jesus says. His explanation doesn't really seem to go there. It does become clearer as you read the rest of the New Testament. I would certainly encourage you to explore and study that. But Jesus' explanation does go there a bit indirectly by getting to the heart of it all. And if you'll notice, his explanation in verses 17 through 20 is both very bad news and very good news. That list in verse 19, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, all of them, Jesus says, come out of the sinful heart of man. And that's really bad news because it means that no matter how many times you wash your hands, your heart is still in need of washing. It means that no matter how many foods you avoid, your heart is still unclean unless there is supernatural intervention, spiritual, divine, inner washing. And that is good news because that is why Jesus came. His perfect life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection are exactly why he came and exactly what we need for real, spiritual, inner heart cleansing. The defilement that spiritually rots us from the inside out can only be addressed through the spiritual, supernatural, inner cleansing that comes through faith in Christ. If you're here this morning longing for cleanness of this kind, it's freely offered to you in the gospel to be received simply by faith. And if you have questions about that, our prayer team, just like every Sunday morning, is going to be standing in the back after the service today. You'll, you'll recognize them by the lanyards that they're wearing that say prayer team. They would love to talk to you further about any questions that you have about receiving that cleanness that Jesus offers. The Pharisees and scribes had it all inside out. Like the socks you pull out of the drawer and put on and then realize you've got to take one of them off because it's inside out and you try it again. They prioritized the outside to the tragic exclusion of the heart of the matter, which is the heart. The inside. Commentator Frederick Dale Bruner said that the filth of the toilet is not so great as that of the human heart. 
And that is why supernatural transforming grace from Christ is needed. Because, my friend, hand washing and food abstinence can never cleanse your heart. But you know, my friend, all of you who are here this morning, who are in Christ, you read that list in verse 19, praise God, those things don't characterize you anymore. Amen? Our inner defilement has been washed. Now, we may sin from the flesh, but we have been cleansed. Our identity has been changed. We are transformed, the New Testament says, into the people of God by His grace. And our hearts are washed. All who trust in Christ and His gospel work receive this. And so, friend, if you are here and you are in Christ, I just want to assure you, you have no reason to fear or dread or worry that you are defiled. Because if you are in Christ, you are righteous through Him. So let's praise God that through Christ, our inner heart condition is washed. And we are clean through Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord, a, a larger passage like this is in need of many hours of meditation and application and explanation. And in a brief, whatever it's been, 45 minutes or so, there is much left to be considered and applied and I pray that you would take the feeble and lacking efforts of this poor preacher and use them in the lives of your people gathered here to go further with this passage, to meditate on its truth and to apply it to their lives. And may we as a church be wary of the errors of the Pharisees and scribes to devalue what is revealed in Scripture for the sake of human tradition and structure. And may we who are in Christ be thankful for the cleansing that we have received through grace. And may anyone listening to my voice, whether here in this room, live on our stream, or even later on a recording, who has never been washed in the blood of Christ, who has never received the cleansing from the inside out that Jesus freely offers, may today be the day that they call out to you in faith and repentance. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take a few more minutes and meditate quietly in prayer in light of the Word of God.